I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Are there any journalists in the room? Come on, no, none of your undercover stuff. And uh, why are you friend or foe? Eh? Reuters. Reuters. Completely objective and independent. It's been very, very, it's a very strange thing to write about the media, I tell you. Because um, I, I should explain, I have a rather uh, fortunate position as a reporter in that I have a kind of safe haven on The Guardian where I'm allowed to spend masses of time digging into subject areas. So like uh, he was saying, I've done crime, schools, drugs, rich people avoiding tax, and I get a year or two to dig in. And the response you get from the people who inhabit that area is good, because finally somebody's had the time to look at their world, and they say, hey, I'm glad you said that. And then Fleet Street says, yeah, we're glad you said that. Have an award. It's fine. But then you break this unwritten Fleet Street rule that we shouldn't write about each other. Dog doesn't eat dog. That's the Fleet Street rule. So this time what's happened is that I've got masses of journalists from all over this country and around the world sending me emails saying, thank God you said that. And then in Fleet Street newspapers, this hissing confusion of disgusted editors and individuals who come out badly from the book, uh, giving me the professional equivalent of being burned at the stake. Because you can't say that about us because we're not like the other people. Write about them but not us. And the reason I'm mentioning this is partly to explain the fact that I am so tired that I may fall asleep from dealing with all this aggression. If I fall asleep, just shout, the Daily Mail are here, I'll wake up. <laughs> but also because that's the, that's the reason for writing this book. I cannot think of any good reason why the media should be exempt from the scrutiny which they try to bring to bear on the rest of the world. And the immediate trigger for that thought for me, not the subject of the book, but the trigger was the weapons of mass destruction that as it became clear, in, undeniably clear, that those weapons didn't exist, I found it frustrating that with very few exceptions, media in this country and around the world discussed that as though it were merely a problem of intelligence agencies and government. Well, clearly that, that problem was there, but it was a triangular problem, if you like. The misinformation involved almost every media outlet on the planet. And I think that's there's a terribly interesting question to be asked, for your sake and our sake, the hacks within the media. Why? Why would that happen? And just before I try and answer it, if you pull back, there's an interesting thing here that we quite often feed you with misinformation. This applies to some of the great global stories. So if you think, like the book begins with the Millennium Bug. It's a lovely story. And somewhere in the midst of all that, there was a kernel of truth. But what we gave you, by and large, was, to use a technical term, complete garbage. Uh, masses and masses of misinformation we gave you about the Millennium Bug. Most of what we told you about the weapons of mass destruction was wrong. Most of what we told you about the scandal around Bill Clinton was wrong. Repeatedly, we tell you about terrorist attacks that are about to take place that don't. People get arrested for terrorist offences. We tell you why, and we're wrong. Do you remember the people who were arrested in Manchester? They were going to blow up uh, a Manchester United game. 
the whole crowd. But they were released a few hours later. Whoops, wrong again. Why do we give you so many wrong stories? And it's not just these great big stories. It's those little stories that just flow through the paper and last 24 or 48 hours. I mean, recently we had that uncheckable story. I can't tell you it's wrong, but it certainly shouldn't have been in the papers about the twins who'd been separated at birth and then ended up married. Where was our evidence for saying that was true? Or around the same time, quite recently, do you, you know the story I'm talking about? Yep. We all ran it without any evidence at all. Uh, or the Romanian children. Do you remember police in, I think it was Slough, uh, rescued 10 Romanian children who'd been trafficked into this country? Uh, utterly untrue. But why did we run it? The big stories and the little stories. Now, what I'm trying to say is that if you say to people outside the media, well, you can't believe everything you read, people understand that. I think perhaps they don't understand the scale on which that's true, but they understand that's a fact. They need to be sceptical. But why? If you ask them why, my experience is they tend to fall back on conspiracy theories. In particular, they like to think, or they tend to think, that this is all to do with proprietors leaning down from on high and telling us what to write. Now, that does happen to some extent, and I've described some of it in the book. Murdoch does do that to his hacks. But it doesn't begin to explain the whole picture, why, why no proprietors were interfering with the Millennium Bug story. There's something else here. And there's a, a dafter conspiracy theory as well, which is it's all advertisers telling us what to write. I can't find a single example anywhere in national media of advertisers successfully distorting an editorial line. There's something else. So what I want to argue is that we've become structurally prone to provide falsehood, distortion, and propaganda. That it isn't just occasional. The way we're structured means that it's likely to happen. And in order to do this, I, I'll, I'll explain the sort of general reasons why that might be the case, but I've ended up breaking this bloody Fleet Street rule about dog doesn't eat dog by going right inside particular newsrooms and, and getting into stories behind stories to explain why they happened. Okay, so if you look at it in general terms, what I'm arguing is that in the last 30 or 40 years, the ownership of the media has changed. So it used to be owned by big uh, like, uh, families. People like Lord Beaverbrook owned family businesses which owned newspapers. And that generation of owners were propagandists. Beaverbrook made no secret about it. I own the Daily Express in order to use it as a vehicle for my political opinions. Straightforward. But ownership has changed. Those families on the whole have, have given way to big corporations. And the priority of big corporations is different. There is a bit of propaganda in there. There is a bit of ownership interference. But on the whole, those big corporations are there to make money. And so all of the internal logic of the way that newspapers work has changed. In a line, the logic of commercialism has taken over from the logic of journalism. So it, it, this may sound a little bit obscure. In the book, you, it, it, it relates to real stories. But if I just give you the generality of it, th that has all sorts of wonderfully subtle, complicated and destructive effects on the way that journalists do their job, commercialism invading us. The, the most important single factor is... Uh, that we have had our editorial staff cut and cut again. And across just about every media outlet all across the developed world, the same thing has happened as these corporations try to cut their costs, quite understandably. So editorial staff's come down. But at the same time, our output has been increased. So we have all these extra supplements in newspapers, 24-hour broadcasting in radio and telly. Now, this is the beginning of the thing, is that if you ask why don't journalists tell the truth, the core of the answer is because we don't know it. What we're engaged in is the mass production of ignorance. So we told you all that bullshit, sorry about the language, about the weapons of mass destruction and the millennium bug and all these other stories, not because we're trying to lie to you, because genuinely we have no idea what we're talking about. Now, insofar 
I mean, it doesn't matter if, if other people in other professions might not know what they're talking about, but this is an industry that is devoted to truth-telling. So if we don't know the truth, that's catastrophic, right? And if you be, uh, in order, I, I actually went through a great long loop on this in research terms and raised a lot of money and gave it to some researchers at Cardiff University. These are really top-notch academic guys. And they did a big piece, they did masses of research for me. One of the things was a big piece of number crunching on this change between our staffing levels and our output. And the, the, this, as a crude underlying trend, they found that your average Fleet Street reporter now has only a third of the time that he or she used to have to work on each story. And if you take time away from reporters, that, that has an absolutely disastrous effect. So we don't, we, but by and large, we don't go out anymore and make contacts standing in multi-story car parks in a dirty Mac whispering to some, that, that doesn't happen very much. And uh, we don't find stories, we don't make the contacts, we don't even check facts, right? We, we engage in what I call journalism, where we're tied to a keyboard and we process second-hand material that comes our way. Now, I, just, I, I don't want to deal in figures, but just so you've got the general picture, there's a couple of other key things that these Cardiff research, the researchers from the University of Cardiff found for me. So first of all, you understand we've only got a third of the time, on average, to spend on these stories. Second thing was, they analysed more than 2,000 home news stories from the best newspapers in the country, the quality papers. That's Guardian Times, Telegraph, Independent, and also the Daily Mail. It may not be a great paper, but it's easily the most politically powerful. So we, they looked at more than 2,000 stories and they said, where is the raw material coming from for these stories? Massive research effort. And what they found of it, what found was that 80% of these stories were wholly, mainly, or partially composed of second-hand material. I, not produced by the reporters themselves going out and asking questions. Second-hand. I'm going to come to what that second-hand material is in a moment, but I just want to give you the third and final statistic. They then analysed those same stories. This is from the best newspapers in the country and said, where there is a key factual claim in these stories, can we find evidence that that factual claim has been thoroughly checked? And they found that was the case in only 12% of the stories. Okay? So here we are engaged in journalism. We take second-hand material... And roughly speaking, in only 12% of the cases, do we check it? So the broad picture here is, if the Prime Minister wants to tell me there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, I'm going to stick it in the paper. If you tell me all the computers in the world are going to crash on Millennium Eve, it's another story. Tell me, tell, just, just tell me, I'll package it quickly and stick it in the paper. If I check 12% of the facts overall in a day's work, I'm lucky. Right? We're no longer doing our job. We're no longer discriminating. So we are wide open to being manipulated. Okay, now just come back to say, where is this second-hand material coming from? <clears throat> there are two key sources. The first is that it comes from uh, wire agencies. So where you're talking about UK home news, you're talking about the Press Association. Where you're talking about global news, there are two, Reuters, you're at the back there, and the AP, the Associated Press. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about the UK just in a minute, but, but it, the same applies globally, unless you really want to disagree with me. If you take the UK picture, here's the way it used to be. You sit in Fleet Street. Out there in the provinces, the th there were thousands of journalists who could dig out raw material from which we in Fleet Street could write stories. And these journalists worked in the local newspapers and in freelance agencies all over the country, right down to the one-man band in the little village, particularly in the courts. And they also worked as the district staff, full-time employed by the national newspapers in Fleet Street. Now, all of those three pools of labor have been more or less wiped out. Not entirely, but to a considerable extent. Local newspapers have lost thousands and thousands of staff. 
because they too have been taken over by these corporations who've cut the editorial staffing levels. And the old senior reporters have tended to be replaced by very cheap juniors. So we've lost the bulk of them as a source of raw material. The freelance agencies have suffered incredibly badly. I've, I've written a book. They've just disintegrated. Court reporting agencies, they've gone. And the district staff that we used to maintain, by and large, have gone. In its place, you have, in this country, the Press Association. So in round numbers, we've lost thousands and thousands of journalists on the ground who used to be finding out what was going on and telling us in the middle. They've gone. The Press Association, in order to replace them, has increased its district staff from 20 people, scattered all over the UK, to 70. Right? So we've lost thousands and replaced them with 50. With the best will in the world, that wire agency, PA, does not know what's going on in this country. So, for example, most courts now are completely invisible to the media. We have no idea what's going on in the courts. And the courts are vital places. That's where the friction comes up through society. We've almost entirely stopped covering local authorities and police authorities and health authorities. They're off the map because there's nobody out there. We sit in the middle. We run stories that PA gives us. Do you see? We've lost the contact. And the same is true globally. AP and Reuters are honest. I'll give you that organizations, but they cannot possibly cover the globe in the way that the network of staff and freelancers used to. Okay, so that's one thing. And then the other thing that we're, so we're recycling this agency copy, which doesn't really tell us what's going on in the world. And that agency copy, and plus the material that we receive ourselves, is infiltrated by this other stuff, which is PR. Now, PR is terribly important. This is the public relations world. When I started as a hack 30 years ago on a local paper, if I wanted to do a story with the police, I called a police station, I talked to a police officer. Ten years later, it changed. I called the police. I talked to a press officer. I was no longer allowed to talk to a real cop. It was a press officer. Give another ten years, it's changed again. Now, the press officer comes in in the morning, chooses a story from the log, records it on a voice bank, the local hacks ring, take it down in dictation, and that's it. That's, so, if you just, the, the important point about PR is this. Some PR people, if you stick them in a corner, will lie to you. But by and large, they prefer to tell the truth. But they choose the truth. It should be that the media go out, find out what's going on in the world, and say, this is important, this is interesting, we will tell our readers. But that judgment about what to tell you has been taken over by PR. So if you imagine you're the head of the press office for a local police force, and you come in in the morning, and there on the log it says... Uh, detective superintendent was uh, suspended from work last night because he was paralytically drunk on duty. And another one, it says, a detective constable has just been given an award for bravery because he rescued a baby from a burning building. Right, you're the head of PR. Which story are you going to put out? Of course, it's clear. It's a true story. But you will choose what we write. Okay? So you're feeding us this stuff, and we're not checking it. The wire copy, PR. Do you see? We don't know what's going on in the world. You can choose, whoever it is, these outside sources, what we write. So what I've tried to describe, once you've got that in place, that's a rather boring, I know, abstract general picture, but once you've got that in place, you can, see, you can start to see what's going so wrong, that with the great global stories and the little ones, we're being manipulated by this PR industry, which is now so powerful. You know, there was an invisible moment within the last 10 years where the number of journalists in the country, slowly declining, was finally overtaken by the number of PR people. So there are now more of them than there were of us. In fact, lots of the journalists have actually crossed the bridge to become PR people, Alistair Campbell being an obvious example. So in the book, I've tried to describe the extraordinarily subtle way in which PR works with us. I took as an example, you remember the NatWest 3, which is a fascinating story where Enron collapses in a cloud of corrupt accounting. Soon after that, the Sunday Times says, aha, there are these three NatWest bankers who are embroiled in all this corruption. 
and you have about six months of coverage in which these three guys are presented as being thoroughly bad people who break the law, who are greedy, who are womanizers. There's lots of stories about their personal life and their disgusting overspending. And then there's a little pause, and suddenly it starts to change. These people are not the perpetrators of crime. They are the victims of bad law. Do you remember there was an extradition treaty to the United States? And there was a huge hullabaloo about the fact that Brits could be extradited to the States without the evidence being tested, but not the other way around. And suddenly these people become victims, and the stories about their domestic life, and the, the wives and children crying at home, the homes that they may lose, the years and years they're going to have to spend in, in jail in Texas being sodomized by rapists, and the manacles they'll have to wear while they're awaiting trial. Why did Fleet Street suddenly change its coverage so completely of those people, to the point where the Sunday Times who'd originally exposed them joined in the sympathetic coverage? What happened? PR happened. They hired a very, very good, effective PR agency called Belyard Communications, who changed the angle on the story and fed it to us, and we gobbled it up, because that's what we do, you see. So there's a, the PR is very subtle. Uh, I, I, rather, I, I won't go on about PR forever, because it's not just about press releases and press conferences. Uh, one of the things that the most sophisticated PR companies do is that they set up grassroots organizations, which aren't real. So, for example, you'll suddenly see patients appearing on breakfast television saying, oh, I suffer from the following terrible disease, but I can't get it treated because the government won't license X drug. Well, this isn't a real grassroots organization. It's set up by the pharmaceutical company to promote their drug and to use the media to put pressure on the government. In America, they, there are so many of these, they, they have a special name for them. They say they're not grassroots groups, they're astroturf groups because the grass isn't real. So, so PR is out there working very, very cunningly to manipulate us and make these judgments which we should be making. Interestingly, because most PR is true, but selective, okay? Since the uh, terrorist attacks of September 2001, in the book I've traced the growth of a different thing, which is naked propaganda, the invention of brazen fiction, which is easily fed into this very, very vulnerable global media. I said that, that you know, um, Marshall McLuhan used to talk about the global village, where everybody could communicate with everybody. And I said, well, we're now more like the global village idiot, so easily led. So in this chapter on propaganda, I went back and I looked at the story of al-Zakawi. Do you remember him? He was the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. He wasn't. He wasn't. He's a soap opera character. I mean, he existed. That man existed. But most of what you were told about al-Zakawi was fiction, fabricated by Actually, yeah, well, fabricated by these people in intelligence agencies and in, in uh, an enterprise which is it's not known as propaganda, it's known as strategic communications. But that's what it means. It means the fabrication of fiction to be inserted into vulnerable media. And if you look back at the Al-Zakawi story, it's almost comic, the extent to which we were misled. So, I mean, as a single example, Zakawi became a global public figure in that famous speech that Colin Powell made to the UN Security Council in February 2003, a month before the invasion. And apart from the WMD argument, he's trying to make the link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, okay? And he, the, the substance of this link is this man, Zakawi. And uh, it's explained that uh, he's a very senior Al-Qaeda man, brackets a lie, and that he's been injured in Afghanistan in the leg and has been in Baghdad with Saddam's consent having an operation as a result of which he's lost a leg. So we have this one-legged senior Al-Qaeda man. Now if you come forward a couple of years, they lost the thread of their own plot because when those poor people like Ken Bigley started having their heads cut off, we were told that the masked man with the knife was Al-Zakawi who miraculously had sprouted a second leg. 
There he was. So, so it's, it, I mean, in the chapter I've analysed it in detail. That is the most brazen fiction. And that continues. In the last 10 days, there's been two other stories. Which I, there's, a, there's a website I've done called Flat Earth News, which I've logged on there, where I'm almost sure that's exactly the same machinery of strategic communications, planting laughable fiction. But we let it in. Do you see what I'm talking about, this journalism? You don't have to go and make a deal with a corrupt proprietor to get us to put something wrong in the newspaper. We will do it naturally and immediately. Do you see? Because we haven't got the time to do our jobs improperly. It's very frightening, this. When you watch how this feeds through into popular understandings and into government policy and public spending, the word I've used in the book is frightening. Because if you don't have information, if you don't have truth, the whole structure of life starts to wobble. Okay. So I've done that. Well, then, so, it, so I've done all this business about scale and explaining, and there's very, very subtle ways in which commercialism invades our work. And I've talked about uh, the subtlety of the PR industry and this propaganda industry. Well, then where I've got into trouble, and the reason that people are shooting at me, is that in the, towards the end of the book, I've started going inside newsrooms. And there's four chapters there. One is called The Dark Arts. And this is the extension of the problem of commercialism, where it affects reporters who are expected to deliver, to deliver scoops. So if those reporters, like the general news reporters, are not given the necessary time and resources, they cheat by hiring private investigators to cut corners and break the law for them. So I have explained at great length and with a lot of evidence and naming rather a lot of names, which is why they're cross, that most newspapers in Fleet Street for years have been routinely conspiring to break the law, okay? So what they, they hire the private investigators who will use bribery or blagging, they call it, i.e. conning, to get at your uh, bank statement, your credit card statement, your itemized telephone bill, your social security records, your tax records, your criminal records if you've got one, even your health records, the most sensitive of all records, they will get, okay? And by hiring these private investigators to do that, they can sell them, save themselves weeks of work. But that is all illegal, illegal under the Data Protection Act, illegal under specific offences about tax and police records. In addition, the other thing which some newspapers are doing, not, not quite as many, but some, is that they're, they're just using cash bribes to corrupt civil servants and police officers. And this is some of your kind of right-wing law and order newspapers. So, the, again, there's a lot of detail on this in the book, but the newspaper that has led the way, as far as I can tell, in bribing police officers is the Daily Mail which stands up for law and order more than any other. I mean, the hypocrisy is just breathtaking, <laughs> breathtaking. And the guy they used to do that, to carry the bribes, who's been doing it for years, is himself a corrupt police officer who was bounced out of the force. I covered this guy's trial years ago. He was actually acquitted, but there's absolutely no doubt he was bent. And so they use a bent officer to pass bribes to other bent officers in order to get information off the police national computer, which is itself a crime, and or to get information about ongoing police inquiries, as a result of which some police inquiries get screwed up. <laughs> because it makes stories easily and cheaply. It is disgusting. Uh, so the dark arts is all about that illegality. The other brand leader uh, in the dark arts is the Sunday Times. So, so the tabloids are in there, but as far as I can tell, it's the Daily Mail and the Sunday Times who've led the way. I've described in the book how the Sunday Times actually hired a reporter specifically to handle the dark arts for the insight team, you know, the investigative unit, which is now being closed. And the idea was that he was hired but given freelance status. This is a guy called Dave Connett, who was actually a very good reporter. He was given freelance status so that if he got caught doing something illegal on behalf of the Insight team, they could say, oh, he's nothing to do with us, he's some crazy freelance. And the problem was that when they closed the Insight team in July 2005, 
Conit said, well, you can't just sack me. I'm on the staff. You've got to give me a little bit of compensation. I said, no, 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 no. You're a freelancer. You can get lost. So he took them into an industrial tribunal, which, of course, Fleet Street didn't cover. And the industrial tribunal found that he was indeed effectively a staff man masquerading as a freelancer in order to be able to do the dark arts. Do you see? It's serious stuff. Okay, so then the other three chapters, I've gone into some detail about the Sunday Times and the decline of truth-telling in that newspaper, which I think is the saddest story in recent Fleet Street history. And I, I went back a little bit to the late 60s when that newspaper under Harry Evans first set up the Insight team and did those fantastic investigations into Kim Philby and the thalidomide scandal. And then you see this slow decline as commercialism and pragmatism and a bit of Murdoch interference take over and poison a once great newspaper. And it's not just from a journalist's point of view, but from a reader's point of view. It's a very, very depressing thing to see a great paper ruined. And the Sunday Times has been ruined. It still makes money. But for journalism, I wouldn't waste my time on it. I've, I've gotten into lots of trouble because I went into The Observer because I work as a freelancer for The Guardian. The Observer is the sister's paper. Uh, all sorts of mad conspiracy theories about why I did it. I did it because there's a very important story there, which, as you may know, is that in the build-up to the invasion of Iraq, they ran a series of very high-profile, aggressive stories which were utterly false. They blamed the attacks of September 2001 on Saddam Hussein, utterly false. They blamed the subsequent anthrax letters that went around the United States on Saddam Hussein, utterly false. There was a string of stories of a more UK political bent, all utterly false. Not all, but a lot of them were utterly false. Why did they do that? And, and the interesting thing about the Observer, it's a model of manipulation. So I traced it back to a, a strategy of manipulation, partly by the American intelligence agency, the CIA, a little bit of MI6, and lots and lots of Downing Street. And th that manipulation got that newspaper to the point where they literally didn't know what they were talking about. And they ended up, as I've described in the book, failing to publish stories filed by their American correspondent, which were accurate which discovered that the CIA analysts were saying, actually, we no longer believe this guy's got weapons of mass destruction. But that never made it into the paper because the people at the top of it had been so confused by this strategy of manipulation that they didn't think that story was true, and they ended up supporting the war. It's quite a scary story. And then at the end, I've gone into the Daily Mail. I think you better read about that. I can't bear talking about it. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the kind of outline of what I've tried to do in this book. I don't know how long I've been talking for, but should I, can I stop for a while and would you ask me questions because it would help me, then I wouldn't have to use my brains so much. Okay, over to you. You talk. If you could uh, wait for the microphone there. Okay, there's a man here. Right, thank you. It's not really a question, oh. but I was here a year or two ago listening to Alistair Campbell. Oh, yeah. And there were some very important people in the audience, Michael Foote and one or two others. And I dare not ask a question because I thought they were highly intelligent people. And they would ask the right questions. They didn't. And I'm furious with myself for not asking a question. And I think there was a lady sitting there where she was getting red in the face because nobody's asking the right question. What do you think of this audience? Are they going to ask you decent questions? What, what do I think of this audience? Yes, because it seems to me that the, the people that are listening and reading are gullible. Are what? Gullible. You know, what word can we use for people who won't ask people like Alistair Campbell serious questions? I don't know whether you've told me the truth or not tonight, but it sounded, it sounded good pretty good to me. <laughs> no, you should check. I, I'm not actually... So the suggestion is that the, the, the audience stroke the public are too gullible. I think there's a strange thing here. You know, newspaper circulations are slowly drifting down. 
And when newspaper executives try to explain that, they say, ah, oh, well, it's to do with the internet, people reading online, advertising, migrating. They always use that same cliché. And then they say it's because simply newspaper reading habits have changed. And they say that as though it were a fact that had fallen out of the sky along with the rain. Well, why would they change? Isn't it possible that the public aren't gullible and do understand that they can't believe everything they read and are fed up? with propaganda and distortion and falsehood, not to mention trivia and silliness. I, maybe there's just a quiet rebellion going on, but they're not going to admit that, are they? I don't want to say, I just want to put this back in perspective. The, the book is a lot more subtle than perhaps I am sitting here in this slightly crazed state of fatigue. I'm not saying all journalism is dead at all. I'm saying it's in terrible trouble. We've become structurally vulnerable to getting things wrong. But it's a much more subtle picture than perhaps I've painted just yakting on. Sorry, is there anybody else here? Where, where, where have you gone? Um, I remember a few years ago when the Sunday Times Insight team prepared a special edi edition of the Sunday Times magazine, which was about the CIA penetration of the labor movement in this country. Oh, yeah. And it was then subsequently pulled. Without being published at all? Without being published at all. And I came across this because I walked into a bookshop um, a few years later and somebody had reprinted the whole thing using the original artwork wow. and it was then um, censored by the Sunday Times who, um, who, who uh, argued um, that it was in breach of their copyright because they'd used the artwork. Um, but the point that I really wanted to make is that um, organisations like magazines like Encounter have been in, subsidised by the CIA and in yeah. this country we've had the IRC and uh, other government agencies feeding mm -hmm. propaganda to the press. Yeah. Is, is it just a question of degree that, uh, that things have changed, or are we looking at something which is really completely new? Okay. Um, this is about propaganda. So um, in, in the chapter on propaganda, I retrace the history that you're talking about. And it appears that at the height of the Cold War, arguably the biggest media owner in the world was the CIA. So this is, this, this is slightly second-hand information. It comes from people like Carl Bernstein and New York Times reporters who did masses of digging with CIA officers. But they spoke to people who said, we, have, we own media outlets in every country in the world, right? As quite apart from agents and others. It's all, it's all there in the book, but it was a vast, vast operation. But it's very difficult to know precisely what's happening now. So I've only got the barest bones of what the CIA up to. I did more work on this propaganda chapter than any other, but it's the one I did worst on. I mean, I can see with the Zakawi story, you can clearly see the symptoms. Somebody somewhere is sitting in a dark corridor fabricating news for us and getting away with it. They must laugh at us. But precisely who it is and who's paying them and the scale of it, I frankly didn't discover because it's very difficult to get at. I spent ages in Washington trying to get there, but I only got kind of halfway there. There was a guy here. But I suspect it's on the rise. Thank you. Uh, can the BBC save us, and have they got responsibility to save us? It's interesting. You see, the BBC and the Guardian and the Observer, to an extent, are interesting because we don't. We are owned by trusts, and therefore the commercial pressure is somewhat mitigated. But at the end of the day, we're still drawn into the marketplace, and we still tend to be fouled by the same logic. So the BBC because of the politics of, of uh, establishing its license fee and getting it up to the level which it wants, becomes embroiled in populism, that it judges itself or expects government to just it according to its ratings. And so it gets drawn into the commercial logic. So I teach at the BBC, 
<coughs> for better or worse. And there's no doubt there is a culture of honesty in there. If you talk to individual journalists, they want to tell the truth. They want to do their job well. And it, it is, in that sense, an honest organisation. But as a single example, there was a survey done of their output in the build-up to the invasion of Iraq, and 86% of their stories took it for granted that the weapons of mass destruction existed. So you can see the fault there, even though the culture of honesty may be there. So I'm afraid the BBC won't save us. The BBC website, I think, is particularly vulnerable to this journalism. They just whack out stories at such a rate without checking that whatever it is that's running on the wire true or false, will end up on the website. And then it's scary because BBC, uh, BBC, Fleet Street News Desk sit there and they say, oh, there's a story running on the Press Association. Oh, look, and it's on the BBC News website. It must be true. But all the BBC have done is to rewrite the PA copy. It's very vulnerable. More? Anybody uh, here? Uh, well, actually, we may be, well, go on, yes, but we ought to move to the back in a moment. Sorry, why am I in charge? I don't know. Oh. Hi, my question actually relates to that, uh, which is that for the research of your book, either you or some poor researchers fested away in Collindale for a while. Um, and the move in journalism at the moment is towards uh, internet sites. Alan Rushbridger obviously has put a great deal of money into The Guardian Unlimited. Yeah. Uh, what do you believe would happen to a future Nick Davies in 20, 30 years' time trying to research these kind of stories at a point when perhaps the truth, a kind of vulnerable beast at the best of times, might be easier to reach. You know, you were able to hit a lot of these stories because you were coming at them a few okay. years after they had happened. <coughs> the, the, so really what we're talking about is the impact of the web on the future. It's really complex, this. And there are newspaper executives all over the developed world scratching their heads and not quite getting on top of it because there are so many variables which are unpredictable. So you can say the web helps reporters. It helps journalists who are strapped to their keyboards because you can do so much more research from your seat without needing to go out. But against that, the web is full of nonsense as well as reality. It's very difficult to discriminate against. M moving it a little bit further, uh, insofar as we start filing for a website, life on the face of it can become even worse because at the moment, if you write for a daily newspaper, at least you have until six o'clock in the evening before your deadline hits you. If you're filing for a website, the deadline's there all the time. Every, every time you get a story, you whack it out on that website. That's why BBC website is so bad, because they have this rule about trying to get breaking news up within five minutes. And they, they, they say, write and check the story within five minutes. It can't be done. It's just ludicrous. But that's their rule. Uh, so that's the danger. But then you could organize it so that that doesn't happen. You could say, OK, we'll have some people whacking out news really fast, but we'll have these other people over here who will protect and we'll create a safe haven for them where they're allowed the time to work properly and they'll put exclusives on the website. Now, if that makes commercial sense because it attracts readers, that might happen. But I don't know whether it will. I don't even know whether it'll happen with The Guardian and The Observer, you know, that are being merged onto this website. So it's terribly, terribly unpredictable. There's a funny thing that happens at The Guardian at the moment, which is we pay for our home news three times. So we, first of all, we pay for PA to send it to us. Then we pay for people on the website to rewrite it. And then we pay for people in the newsroom to rewrite it. That's obviously mad. So I think it would be much better if we ran lots of PA and took all those reporters and said, OK, go out and play at being reporters. Go and knock on doors and find stories and make contacts. That would be great. The risk is that, that newspaper managers say, well, if we're going to run all this PA and we're going to merge our website and newsprint people, we can sack lots of them. That's what's happened at the Telegraph, where they've set up this super-duper new merged newsroom. Is anybody here from the Telegraph? I think it's something like 300 people lost their jobs in the process. So that's, that's the fight, and that's why it's so difficult to predict. Does that help at all? I think we should go, where's the mic gone? Yeah, we should do something from the back. You choose one. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense. 
Yeah, staying on the internet, um, what do you think the impact of blogs is? So citizen journalists being able to say, no, actually that story in yesterday's Guardian was rubbish. It's a mess. Uh, it's an imbecile babble, I think, the internet. You get, you get solid gold bloggers like... It was bloggers who discovered that the Americans in, in I should say I was pro-war. I'm talking about the war. I, I, my objections to the way we covered the war are journalistic, not political. I wanted to get rid of the dictator. Now, it was bloggers who discovered that the Americans, when they went into Fallujah in November 04, had been using white phosphorus shells, you know, which explodes and burns deep into the flesh of the people underneath them. The mainstream media missed that. The bloggers discovered it in rather obscure American military magazines. So that's a great piece of blogging doing the business. But, I mean, you read a lot of blogs. It's all to do with sort of werewolves on Wall Street controlling the world. It's balmy. It's balmy. And it's the same with citizen journalists. With the best will in the world, citizens get it wrong. Like, for example, a whacking great dose of the misinformation around the shooting at the Stockwell Underground Station, as Jean-Charles de Menez says, came from members of the public who, with the best will in the world, misunderstood what they saw. They told us that Jean-Charles had leapt over the barriers to get down onto the tube, which made it sound like he was a fugitive. That wasn't him, that was the cops jumping over the barrier, right? They got it wrong. They they counted the shots, wrong. They described the scene when he actually died, wrong. Because people do get it wrong, even though they may be trying to get it right. What we should do is to have a special kind of profession of people who are trained and paid in the skills of discriminating between truth and falsehood and hired to do the same. We could call them journalists. Isn't that a great idea? Anyone else? Is there a market for truth? seems to me not. Is there a market for the truth? I don't know. You see, it comes down to this first question about whether people are gullible and don't care. I think the newspaper executives are aiming low. So they're thinking there isn't really a market for serious news. There isn't really a market for the truth. The best thing is to keep pushing down market. That's where the punters are. And yet circulations are declining. I don't know. Is there a market for the truth? Supposing somebody said, okay. We'll give you a really serious newspaper that actually will go out and find stories and will check them and tell you the truth, but it'll cost you, say, five pounds a day. Would you pay for that? I don't know. See, I think maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> serious as you are. But that, that's, that's where newspapers are struggling. They can't find an economic model to do their job properly. So if you had a car manufacturer that said, actually, the economics don't work, we're going to have to produce cars without wheels or cars without engines, clearly they would go out of business. Our failure is more subtle and invisible than that, so we're allowed to produce cars without engines, and some of you are still buying. I'm exaggerating a little. Um, I would like to put in a... a, Oh, sorry. I would like to put in a small word for the Financial Times. Yeah. That is where you do get the truth, I think. You, I, I don't know. Uh, I would think well, you've uh, got masses and masses of PR material in the Financial Times. That, that may be so, but it also produces some of the best investigations. Okay. Remember that Pesto, he of, of North, Robert Peston, came from the FT, I think, via the Telegraph to the BBC. Okay. But that is real journalism. Yeah. No, there is and still real journalism. That was nurtured on the FT, which I... I I uh, have an interest. I used to work for them a million years ago, not as a journalist. Yeah. But I would still fly the flag for the FT. There, is, there are still these safe havens of good reporting all around the place. I think the stuff The Guardian's done in exposing the corruption at BAE, in arms deals with Saudi Arabia, is fantastic. So I don't doubt there's good stuff at the FT. But on the whole, uh, city reporting, financial reporting, tends to be very heavily influenced by uh, PR material. Um, who? Oh, my God. Who? No, you've gone the wrong way. Never mind, be disobedient. Then she's next. I'm sorry. 
Thank you. Um, just because it goes together with the previous question, um, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, what is the role of the press in creating or forwarding the present financial depression? And uh, who can benefit from such a dark sort of panorama of the, the economy? Hang on, you're talking about the, the role of the press in creating? Yeah, creating and forwarding. The, the, the economic depression. Yeah. The honest answer is I've got no idea because I've not looked at it. There no. you are, being honest. Which can't happen really among journalists. But uh, I don't know. Who, who, what's your theory? Would you say... But does somebody have a PR interest in feeding that kind of depressing information? Well, as you're asking the right sort of questions. Certainly, as you read newspapers, you should ask questions like that. And try. I don't necessarily want you to buy this book, nick a copy. Well, I mustn't say that in a bookshop, actually. But, <laughs> the, but the best, re apart from the fact that I've had all those journalists getting in touch and saying, thank God you said that, the really good reactions, the people who read it and then say, email me or whatever and say, the next time I read a newspaper, I could decode it. I could see through it. So you can spot the PI. Ask, there's a very good question. Whose interest does this story serve? And you'll start to see this stuff. You'll spot the propaganda running through as well. It's quite a good game when you can see the fictions that have been planted there. So I can't answer the specifics of your question because I don't know about it, but in general terms, yeah. Um, it was this one we missed out on. I'm the... Um, are you saying that doesn't have anything to fear from the press anymore, that the press, really, they can, or it's puppet, thanks to Alistair Campbell and, and people yeah. like that. It's more muddly than that, isn't it? Because uh, I, I said somewhere that, I, I, in writing it, I kind of apologized, I stopped and apologized, I said, this, this, what I'm describing here, it all makes it sound rather sort of smooth, like a, a factory working with conveyor belts. I said, actually, it's much more like... I don't know why I said this, more, more like watching a mouse being thrown into a tumble dryer. It's just kind of chaos as all this news stuff is thrown around from side to side, has its brains bashed out. So on the one hand, there is no doubt that the PR industry generally, government centrally through Alistair and previous administrations, have become much, much more subtle and effective at manipulating the press, particularly at setting the agenda. This is the story you'll cover today, and this is the angle. But, that, but then there is a countervailing force. And what the countervailing force ought to be is honest journalists trying to tell the truth. Actually, the countervailing force is the other side of the commercialism. It's newspapers like the Daily Mail, bitter, cynical, greedy, profit-seeking newspapers, twisting and distorting whatever comes their way in order to give themselves a story that will be commercially or, or to some extent, politically satisfying for them. So that I I've experienced this in the last month or two. You get reporters ringing up. I had a reporter ringing up with a mad smear about my private life. So I said, uh, it isn't true. And after about half an hour, he said, oh, actually, you're right, it isn't true. <laughs> so he goes off, and I think that's the end of that. Thank God we didn't get that in the paper. Two hours later, he's back. Uh, you know the thing we talked about, yeah? And you said it wasn't true, yeah? My editor wants me to push it, right? So it's untrue story, but never mind, let's get it in the paper. So we went through it all again, and two or three times he admitted the story isn't true. And I thought, that's the end of that? No. Because it's funny, because he was saying, oh, it's a bit, a bit of stuff about your private life. I said, who is the editor who's telling you to push it? He said, I can't tell you that. So that, that's confidential, while my private life suddenly become public property. So in the end, I spoke to the editor and stopped that story going into the paper, untrue, as the reporter repeatedly said it was, only because I told him correctly that I had tape recorded 
these phone calls on which the reporter repeatedly admitted that the story wasn't true. And if he stuck it in the paper, I'd stick him in the paper. But what I'm trying to get is the, count I can't remember who answered the, question, the countervailing force. So it isn't a straightforward case of governments, corporations, charities, terrorist groups, trade unions manipulating us. They're doing that, and to a considerable extent they get their way. Then there's this countervailing force which is coming from the wrong direction on the whole. There is still some truth-telling going on, but there's too much of this kind of just messy, destructive, cynical, dishonest hackery going on. I would not like to be Gordon Brown. Day after day you make policy announcements, you may have something very sensible to say, and it'll get scrambled by that cynical commercialized machine. Does that make sense? Uh, I keep having to make these decisions about microphones. There's a guy at the back there. Can you reach him? Yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that the central thesis of your book is that journalists don't check facts. Um, and uh, you've written about a number of journalists in your book and yeah. named them, notably David Leppard, uh, Roger Alton, the former editor of The Observer. I think in both cases I'm right in saying that you didn't actually check the facts that you wrote about them with them directly and they both complained about the fact that they weren't given a, an opportunity to respond in your yeah. book and you didn't quote them in, in your book. In yeah. Leppard's case he was told that you wouldn't believe what he said anyway so what's the point in putting his arguments in? I mean I've got two points. Yeah, go if, you're not a, if you're not checking your facts yourself does your, does your book have any worth? And secondly uh, your book, um, a number of inaccuracies have been pointed out uh, about your book by journalists who've been quoted in them, even some that you, that you actually did speak to, like Peter Beaumont at The Observer and Paul Webster at The, uh, at the Observer. Well, if you read the Press Gazette today, they both say that there's factual inaccuracies about stories um, relating to them. So if you've got the facts wrong, why should we take you seriously okay. when you're attacking uh, um, papers for getting facts wrong? Okay. I'm glad you asked me this. <laughs> you know, I was talking earlier on... I was talking earlier on about the kind of smearology that's been going on. I think it's part of the world of journalism that checking has become a kind of cheap cheat. Here's the way it works. It's what I've just described to you. Somebody hears or invents an allegation, and instead of checking, what they do is to ring the person on the other end and say, is that true? Now, if the allegation is true, they get a quote saying, yes, it's true, and a bit of expansion, so it can go in the paper. If the allegation is not true, they get a denial, which enables them to get it through the lawyer, and it still goes into the paper, true or false. That's not checking, that's journalism. And so, <coughs> in writing this book, I have checked and checked and checked. So I've been attacked from all sides by the people I've attacked, which is absolutely to be expected. Not a single fact has fallen down. One of the people who you've mentioned, who is claiming to find an inaccuracy, I can't name him because it was off the record, actually read in advance the entire chapter and approved it. So if he is now coming out and saying that there's something inaccurate in there, it's because he's changed his mind about what the truth is and not because it wasn't checked. But let me give you some examples of it. So um, I, I talked to you about how I, I work in the industry for 31 years. I, when I start writing the project, I believe from my experience and those of my friends or students I teach that we have less time to do our work and that we're recycling lots of uh, second-hand material and that we're not checking our facts. Now, I could easily simply bung that in as anecdotal evidence, instead of which I went off on a long loop, raising money from a charitable trust, giving it to Cardiff University, a huge exercise in checking to get precise facts to stand that up. And then, it go I, then I, I ran chunks of it in Press Gazette a few weeks ago. What happens is that Press Gazette, not me, ring 
the Daily Mail and the Independent and the newspapers who are nailed down by this checking. And they say, is it true that you run lots of second-hand information? And guess what they say? It certainly isn't true. Nick Davis has got his facts wrong. I haven't. I've checked. Checking does not consist in going to the bad guy and saying, what would you like to say? If all I had done was checking in the way that the Press Gazette does, I would have gone to the Daily Mail and said, is it true that you run second-hand information? Certainly not. And we wouldn't have known the truth. You check by checking. So, for example... In the book, I've said that the Sunday Times hired a con man, subsequently convicted of fraud, to set up a phony company to entrap and deceive Labour politicians in order to create stories. Now, this starts with a Sunday Times reporter saying this to me in a pub. Now, what the, the kind of journalism world of checking says is, oh, ring the editor of the Sunday Times and say, is it true that you use this con man to deploy entrapment and deceit against Labour politicians to create stories? What is he going to say? Is he going to tell me the truth? So I go out and check, and I obtained tape recordings of this creature at work, blagging information out of Gordon Brown's solicitors. It's in the book, trying to entrap Frank Dobson's campaign team when they were running for mayor of London. It's there. I've got the tapes. Why should I go off and ask the editor of the Sunday Times what he wants to say about it? I don't give a damn what he says. I've checked it. Checking does not consist of asking bad people about bad things they've done. Checking is checking. It's about gathering evidence. And so um, in the particular case of Roger Alton, who's the editor of The Observer, who I've known for 30 years, I know him extremely well, uh, I didn't go to him direct because two of the things I wanted to check were, one, how on earth it was that the left-wing observer had come out with a leader line that was in favor of the war. Now, the leader is the editor's most important ethical responsibility for the newspaper. The bizarre thing I discovered was that Roger didn't go to his own leader conference when they came up with the most important leader line of his time as editor. He gave the job of chairing that conference to his deputy editor, Paul Webster. I still don't know why he did it. So instead of going to the deputy, I went to Paul, the deputy, on behalf of the editor, right? Because he knew about the conference, and also he was the specialist in foreign affairs, and also, frankly, knowing the two men slightly, Roger a lot, Paul very slightly, I thought I'd get more sense and truth out of him. Isn't that all right? I'll tell you what, there's one other example. Even if, because they're, they're pissed off, these people. Even where I have gone to them, uh, they don't like it up them, as they say. Kamal Ahmed was the political editor of The Independent in the run-up to the war. Ran a lot of false stories, heavily manipulated by, Kamal, by um, uh, Alistair Campbell. And um, they used to call him Campbell Ahmed. Um, there was a a controversial incident this is is a nice example of checking so I was told by I I spent lots of time with with more than a dozen observer staff talking about what had gone wrong in the newsroom and some of them said do you know what Kamal got so close to Alistair Campbell that he actually helped to sub do you know what sub means to rewrite and polish up the dodgy dossier that was published in February 2003 now there's a story is it true now, so what the, what the journalists want me to do is to go and ask Kamal. Well, that's not quite good enough. Let's go and do some work first. Let's check. Okay. So I got. So this this is supposed to have happened on the plane that was flying the Prime Minister and the press corps from London to Washington D.C. in February 2003. So I got onto other people who'd been on the plane. Is it true that Kamal went forward and spent time with Alistair Campbell? Yes. How long was he there? About half an hour. Okay. So we've got bits of evidence. We're checking. Checking is about gathering evidence. Talk to people in the Observer newsroom. Some of them were absolutely clear that Kamal came back from that trip to Washington and said, Alistair showed me this dossier before anybody else. He asked me my advice about it. But I'm still a little bit wobbly about it. I'm still not quite sure what went on between Alistair and Kamal. So in the end, I do go direct to Kamal. And I say, OK, what happened? And he gives me his account. 
And that account is what is in the book, right? Come forward a few months. Kamal gets very cross because he's feeling embarrassed by the book, gives a big interview to The Independent and says, bloody Nick Davis, he's said all this stuff about what went on between me and Alistair on the flight to Washington. It's all nonsense. And he gives a new account, completely forgetting that the account that's in the book is his own version of events, which I tape recorded. Do you see? So what I'm trying to say is don't be distracted by people who've been attacked complaining that I didn't consult them of all people to discover the truth, when what I did was to do what journalists should do, go out and check, get the tape recordings, get the evidence and stick it in, and do not be distracted by people telling you lies. Okay? What they're doing? How? The truth doesn't count anymore. Go on, you know, you talk. Has he got a mic? You're making direct accusations yeah. about people and you're not checking it with them. Albeit you're checking it with third parties, maybe they'll lie to you in their response. Disregard their lie then, but ask them and give them a, give them a chance to argue their side. Okay. You're not giving them the but chance so, to argue their side. It's crap journalism. So if I've got a tape recording of the con man from the Sunday Times blagging the information out of Gordon Brown's solicitors, trying to con over hours and hours of tape, Frank Dobson, you want me to go and ask John Witherow what he thinks about that? And, and do I then you? Okay. Okay. Well, you're in saying that you're a step. Did, can you hear what he's saying? You're you're a step ahead of most journalists because they think that you always have to go to the other side to ask them what they say and always use it, and that's a recipe for disaster. You're saying go to the other side, ask, but don't necessarily use it, because then if you did that, you would then be strapped up by these same people who would say, he never even used what I told him. You're dealing with some very, very slippery, aggressive, dishonest people. And our job, are you a journalist? Yes. Okay, our, your, yours and mine is to get to the truth. It isn't to make deals with people. It isn't to make people feel comfortable. It's to get to the truth. And I say, if I've got a tape recording of this guy at work for the Sunday Times, I really don't need to waste my time or my reader's time finding out what John Witherow has got to say about it. He's the editor of the Sunday Times. It's the truth that matters. We're not here for PR. I'm not here to carry uh, mealy-mouthed excuses from the Sunday Times about doing this. If they, I've, I've nailed them in the tape recordings, which are in the book, using entrapment and deceit. That's, that's absolutely overwhelming evidence. What's he, what's he going to do? Mislead me? But what's happening... Well, there's... No, it isn't. You, come to one of my masterclasses. I can tell you more about it. There's all sorts of problems with going to the other side, legal and tactical. You start wandering into the Sunday Times newsroom and tell them what you're up to. Suddenly, the people you're trying to talk to will get very, very scared because memos will start going around saying they will. You have to, I don't know, if, if you can imagine investigating the Daily Mail newsroom and you allow the editor to realize what you're doing, the slender chance you have of persuading people to have the courage to talk to you will just go whoosh. Our job is to get to the truth. If, if you want to, it's, I don't mind these people replying afterwards, though I deeply mind the fact that they make this stuff up. But I, I, I don't, I, there, it's like there's been this kind of storm of hot air around the book. Every single factual brick of that book stands proud. Nothing, nothing has been knocked down by it. Nothing. It's just hot. No. It, no, you. Tell me a fact. Oh, actually, this might be a bit boring for you, but, but <laughs> do you want me to carry on? There isn't a single fact that's been knocked down. Can you hear? <laughs> Sorry. Do, do you want to give him the mic? <laughs> you know what? 
Oh, so Nick, do you, um, do you claim that there was a golden age of journalism? I mean, if you've been to Collindale, you'll know that papers 50 years ago, there was propaganda in them, as you say. There was lies, yeah. there was mistakes. I mean, surely today, for you know, the price of half a cappuccino or a quarter if you're buying a tabloid, you're getting you know, 80 or 90 pages with sport, entertainment, showbiz. You know, surely readers have never had it so good. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a funny thing. Um, the, the, um, several people in the, in the Guardian got terribly cross with me because I believed in a golden age of journalism. And in the book it says, there never was a golden age of journalism. So where they've got this from, it's you, you, because, I, it comes back to the first thing I said, because I've written about Fleet Street, there are some people, the individuals who come out badly, and the very senior people who are cross. And so they're attacking, and they, their attack starts with the crossness. I've seen extraordinary fabrications. And I can't actually keep up with them all. The Press Gazette is behaving in the most bizarre way. It's just providing platforms for people to say mad things. It's all right. It's, I mean, it's, they're kind of proving the point, as you see. That every time they read... Here's the central point. You write a book about falsehood and distortion in Fleet Street. So guess what Fleet Street does? It produces false and distorted stories about the book. So you just have to see it as an endorsement. And you as a journalist need to be able to see through it, to use a little bit of journalistic nous to see the self-interest, where people who've been attacked start frothing at the mouth and saying things. And just look at the facts. Read the book. You'll see not a single fact has been disturbed. They are halfway up the gangway. Are there any particular problems with uh, or benefits of Sunday journalism, of Sunday newspapers? I mean, in theory, they should have more time, presumably, to check and to investigate. Um, on the um, whole, Sunday um, newspapers had the advantage that you get more time to work. Is that what you're asking me? Well, well in theory, but I mean, you, two of the three profiles you produce are off Sunday papers. So I'm asking <coughs> yeah. if there are any particular problems with Sunday papers um, that you can identify. And is there any model of ownership, if the Scott Trust and the BBC are not working, is there any model of ownership that would get around some of these commercialisation problems? I don't know. It's, it's, the, the Sunday newspapers should, in theory, be less vulnerable to this kind of manipulation because the reporters have four or five days to work on their stories. The fact that the Observer and the Sunday Times have fallen so low uh, suggests that somehow the disease has spread into everywhere. Um, as to a model of ownership, th there's an interesting setup in Washington, D.C., a journalistic setup, which is called the Center for Public Integrity, which was set up by a guy called Charles Lewis, who was a producer on CBS 60 Minutes, television producer. And he got sick of the way that that program was being run, so he went out and raised a lot of money from charitable foundations. I think he got a lot from the Ford Foundation. And so he could set up a newsroom staffed by university interns and more experienced reporters, which was already funded without having to succumb to commercial pressure. So they go out and do all sorts of interesting uh, investigations and give them away to the mainstream media, either in the form of books or just press conferences. Give the stories away. And they've done fantastic work. So it would be wonderful if somebody would set up that kind of a setup in this country. But I'm not quite sure that we've got that kind of reservoir of cash in foundations available to us. But other than that, I think the picture is rather depressing. Um, where's the mic? Uh, there's one here. Oh, yes, two, two observations about the BBC. I mean, not really about purveying of lies, but it's whoever at the BBC has decided, you know, that we're not intelligent enough to have a panorama program that lasts more than half an hour mm. now. That's the, that's the first thing. Um, secondly, um, 
Um, I, I do recommend, I've, I've listened to it through like the Iraq war, through Kosovo crisis and that sort of thing, uh, The World Tonight on Radio 4. It, it does seem to have a kind of sober, intelligent um, mm -hmm. approach to, 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 to news. Yeah, yeah, this is Robin Lustig. Okay. Any more for any more? Oh, there's more. Uh, here's one, guy with the glasses. Yeah, I just wondered, um, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not, I was crap at school, I'm not bright enough to really understand everything that was exchanged by you and the other chap in the corner, but so I, I sort of grasp things, I tend to grasp things at, at arm's length, and I, it made me think about um, how as journalists, and what you're talking about was journalism, mm -hmm. the world, if you like, of, of uh, journalism, where you were saying how much things needed to be checked and how certain people should be about what they're saying, what they're not saying, yeah. how people would be approached, either on the telephone or whatever, you know, I'm saying this about you, is it true, or whatever. Yeah. Um, just as a sort of thing to th throw to the floor, if you like, I wonder if the same sort of checks were done on a piece that might be done about someone who was famous, someone, say, from music or, you know, some broadly speaking from the world of entertainment, whether all the red tops next week would be... They wouldn't sell any newspapers because when these things were looked into, they wouldn't be as... Um, the impact would go from the story because it would be more about, you know, how every family is dysfunctional, so it's not particularly amazing that such and such a person who's an actor or from a pop group or whatever comes from a dysfunctional sort of family. I, I liked what you said about the mouse, about the um, <laughs> throwing the details into the journalism thing, and I thought, yeah. well, the difference between the two, if it was a joke, would be that the mouse would always come out clean. <laughs> um, oh, I have an added problem to the newspaper thing of what's true or not, is that my mother likes to read things to me, out of the newspaper and uh, I thought of something when you said about the twins separated um, at birth my mother thought that was a comment about the Scottish Railways and she said to me oh, they've been separated at Perth <laughs> which but anyway that, that, uh, that's it and just to say thanks for your talk because I, I found it really interesting thanks <laughs> oh sorry there's a woman here who's uh, no, okay there sorry this is an all round uh, can I ask you one question? I'm a Norwegian. Uh -huh. We do not pay for the stories mm -hmm. in Norway, and I think the same in other Scandinavian countries. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a solution for quite a few problems here? And secondly, if you can tell a little bit about the meeting with the propagandist in uh, 2006, which we were not supposed to be yet. Oh, yeah. Is that an international mafia who is trying to put their stories into the papers? Okay. Hang on. So there was two things. There's checkbook journalism. Um, checkbook journalism on the whole is something that the tabloid newspapers do. Uh, I haven't really written about the tabloids in the book because I don't think it's interesting to try to explain to the world that the tabloids aren't a reliable source of information. I've focused on the more respectable uh, newspapers. So, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't like checkbook journalism at all. People claim that they use money to get information which otherwise they wouldn't get. The tendency is actually the reverse is the case. What they're buying is silence. You agree to talk to us and to nobody else. It's again, it's this commercial logic. Well, then on the propagandists, <coughs> there was a, in the book, you've obviously read the book, what a good man. I, I, um, while I was researching the propaganda chapter, I made friends with various people in the US and Brit military who were interested in this area. And I discovered there was a conference going on in London for all these strategic communication types from all the NATO countries and the United States. And um, it was a commercial thing. If you paid rather a lot of money, you could get in through the door. Um, 
And so I simply applied, didn't exactly explain that I was a journalist, but I didn't lie either, and got in. And uh, about 20 minutes into the conference, just as they were starting talking, so there was all these real heavyweight, you know, all the American guys and the South Africans and the Germans and the Brits are all there. They had a sudden sort of squawk of panic because they realized what I was. But um, to their credit, some of the Brits stood up for me. And, and uh, I kind of played on the irony that if their job is to manipulate the media and yet they can't deal with a single journalist, they were really in a state of hopeless failure. So I did a deal with them where I was allowed to quote what was said and I was allowed to say who was there as long as I didn't connect the quote to the individual. So, so I, I was happy enough with that because it, it, it allowed me to say the it main things. And it was fascinating to listen to them. So there is that whole hidden industry that's been almost ignored by the media who are its primary victims. That's all right. Um, uh, did you want to go? Yeah, I would. Go on then. That's all right. No, you're tired. Um, can you hear me? Yes, yeah. you can hear me. Um, maybe this is just a repetition of what you said before um, about is there a market for truth? But I wondered, and perhaps it's too conceptual and it's not really real, but I wondered is the so you've been talking about the journalists, but the people reading stuff, whether people are really, what they're interested in is a fiction. So when something's real, they're like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting fiction, but really they're just interesting fiction. When this man was talking about whether we're all gullible, I thought, life sat here having quite a nice time because I thought, oh, wow, look at that stuff happening there. But it doesn't feel... Perhaps this is because I'm not a journalist. This doesn't affect me. But um, I wondered how... Does that make sense? I wondered how that... That people want fiction? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. Uh, I think it's one of the very sort of subtle effects of a commercialised press, is that we will go for fictional models. I think uh, maybe the twins who are separated at childhood and end up being married. That is a kind of Hollywood film, isn't it? And you will find stories being squashed into fictional templates. Um, I've done some of this in the book. There was an example of a court case up in the north somewhere with a 15-year-old girl who was on ASBOs and in all sorts of trouble. And a clever reporter who happened to be in court, one of the few, linked her to... Is there a character in Little Britain who's of some badly behaved young woman and said that this, this girl was like the Little Britain character? And therefore that became a story that ran nationally because she fitted into a fictional template, which is ludicrous, really, if we're supposed to be dealing in truth. But... Um, there's a chapter in the book which is called The Rules of Production, which I think is terribly interesting, but I don't talk about because it it's full of little small subtleties, but it's about the extraordinarily clever, subtle ways in which commercialism invades our thinking. But I, maybe I won't go into it now because it is full of... But it's the, there's lots and lots of examples of stories there which, if you tap on them, they just collapse and you can see the sort of commercial shape underneath them. Um, yeah? Yeah, I wondered if you thought about any parallels between what you're saying about journalism and, ac and the academic world. Uh, where the same kind of commercial pressures come in so that people don't have time to do the research. But then I was led to the thought that you yourself are an example of that kind of commercial pressure in the, and also the way in which people have an agenda, i.e. you had a story to tell, yeah. you paid some researchers at Cardiff, and lo and behold, they came up with the kind of information that you wanted. <coughs> but the, the, the question really, a more serious question, is for people in our position, the public, the only way we can ever get to know anything about what goes on with something like the war in Iraq is the media. So, and so just ask yourself the question, some years on, are we or are we not now fairly well informed about the disasters, the lies, etc., that happened in Iraq? And, for example, what do you think of the London Review of Books uh, articles on what happened in Iraq, particularly the money side of it? So I suppose what I'm saying is, are you talking about something that's really riddled and shot 
through with floors to the extent to which we can't rely on it at all? Or are you just saying, okay, there's a bit of noise in it, a bit of a distortion and so on? I think uh, the picture is complicated. I, I'm saying we're structurally likely to produce falsehood, distortion and propaganda for the reasons that I've described. Um, but equally, there are these safe havens. There are still people trying to do their job properly, and it happens. But um, I don't know. You see, Iraq is a funny example, but I, I worry that we may still be misreporting Iraq because we've got stuck into a narrative of disaster. And I think perhaps the Americans could have good reason for complaining that in the last 12 months they've embarked on a different kind of strategy which David Petraeus has put in place, that the casualties among civilians and US troops have fallen dramatically and we've tended to reduce that to an inside page single paragraph story because having first of all done the we've got to fight the war story and got stuck in that narrative, we've now got stuck in the it's a disaster narrative and failed to change track. I'm not an expert on Iraq so I might be wrong but reading the papers it worries me that we're lagging behind and that we're not doing the, 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 the relative success of the American strategy at the moment isn't being properly reported, question mark. Sorry. The newspaper talk on the fall of casualties is that there's a kind of ethnic cleansing gone on, the different communities are now separated and they've stopped killing each other. I mean, you know, the journalists are on top of it, or at least in that Well, aspect. I don't think it's getting anything like the scale of coverage that the disaster was and, and that certainly... When I was doing all this stuff about strategic communications, it's interesting there are some people working in there, David Petraeus being one of them, who are very, very intelligent, sophisticated people. And what they're fighting the main hierarchy of the Pentagon saying, you cannot fight a war against terrorism by killing people. You have to be subtle and clever. You have to change hearts and minds, to use a terrible cliche. And it, I, I haven't been there, I don't know, but they, they claim, and I haven't checked and I can't see other newspapers checking, that by putting in place that kind of, they call it a non-kinetic strategy, non-physical force, Petraeus has succeeded in changing the way that things are operating on the ground in Iraq. I'm, I'm not claiming to know the truth, but I, I'm saying I have a worry that we continue to fail in our efforts to tell the truth about Iraq. Mind you, there are very special difficulties there because of the physical dangers. So the Guardian have pulled out since Rory Carroll was uh, kidnapped. Any more? Uh, well, how about the, here? Because you had a go. <laughs> Somewhere on the left there? Um, are there any media outlets you trust? Because I saw you, uh, an extract from your book was published in Private Eye. Yeah. So are there any at all that you get that you think... I, I think Private Eye has a very good news judgments and tends to go out still and find uh, stories that aren't being written about. That Rotten Boroughs column is almost the only serious coverage of local authorities anywhere in the national media, which is scandalous. And look at the stories that are in there, just endless incompetence and corruption. Where are all these hacks who are so pleased with themselves? Where are they? What are they doing? They're sitting there, chained to their keyboards, running this journalism, ringing people out saying, what do you think? It's pathetic. <laughs> It is. It's a, it's a profession in the class. It's pathetic. Um, so I've got some time for private eye. Mind you, they've run a really stupid story about me this week, which I found very irritating. <laughs> Nobody's reliable. I think, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I, I've become a media hermit. I shrink from the output of these people. I've just, I mean, while I was researching the book, I had to overdose on it. Now, I, I read The Guardian because I often write for it. I avoid all broadcast bulletins, television and radio. I avoid all other newspapers. I don't read the Press Gazette that this guy's been reading. I just think it's better to live in the real world and not be infected by it. I don't think, you know, the best you can do is to read one, maybe one media outlet and try and decode it. 
That's pretty gloomy, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> I may be overstating my case slightly. Hello. He's suggesting that we should, <laughs> this is a real overdose stuff, we should read all the media outlets in order to test what they say. One of the scary things that I've described in the book is the way that because they rely on this tiny supply of wire copy, which is infiltrated by PR, which happens to fit their rules of production, you get this consensus account of the world. There's not that great a difference. We, we counted up all the different UK news stories there are in each of the quality papers in the Daily Mail, and you see the overlap. In totality, they cover something like 70 stories in a 24-hour period. You set that against all of the trials, all of the local council activity, all of the sex, all of the death, all of the murder, all of the activity. Everything that happened in the UK, we give you 70 stories and say, yeah, that's an objective picture of the UK in the last 24 hours. Rubbish. I wouldn't look to newspapers to find out what's going on in the world. It's, we've got a problem. I don't see why we should... There's a funny sort of assumption that if you've got a problem, there must be a solution. I, I think that we're in worse trouble than that. I said at the end, it's a bit like taking a snapshot of a tumour. I'm terribly sorry, but it's killing us. I don't, there it is. They, now you know. Now you understand why the media are so bad. Not all bad. There are still good reporters in there. I think the one source of optimism is that there are still, A, good veteran reporters, like Adam Curtis at the BBC, or there's, there's lots of good people at the BBC, or David Lee at The Guardian, and every time they fight with their news desks and say... I'm not going to go and do this press conference. I'm going to take the time to work on this difficult story. And every time they win a battle that says, this story may not sell the newspapers, but you have to give it space, those individuals are holding back the tide of journalism. And I see the one other source of optimism is that for some funny reason, journalism attracts very idealistic, good young people. So I have lots of them working for me as researchers. They come through universities. Maybe they've done a grad uh, journalism course. And they're very, very good people. So it's not like the old asses at the end of it. Th th there's too many hacks in this profession, too many journalists, but there are still good people and still good people coming in. And so it isn't over yet. There are still, at that micro level, fights to be fought and battles to be won. Any more? Do you want to... I'm a, I'm a PR who's moving into journalism now, and I just um, want to know, kind of, do you think that's a good idea, apart from money-wise? What I'm really asking is where you see the future of journalism. Do you see it kind of bouncing back and overtaking PR? Do you see a kind of a bright future for journalism? I don't know, because I was asked the other day if I'd encourage one of my children to become a journalist, and I, I really worried about it. But I think... If you don't mind fighting brainless idiots who think that journalism is the right way to behave, if you don't mind struggling with your news desk, if you don't mind standing up for yourself and fighting for your values, there's still something to be fought for in there. But don't go in there imagining that it's going to be easy to do great stories because it is, it's not impossible, but it's becoming more and more difficult. So if you feel like a fight, go in for it, yeah. <laughs> yes, do you want to... Sorry to have you running around everywhere. How long do we go on then? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah? Okay, this um, man here? Well, there seems to be now uh, a story about the quality of stories and bringing it back to The Guardian. I mean, one, one of my favourite reads is Bad Science. What do you think of Bad Science? I think he's brilliant. He's brilliant because he's so aggressive. And, I, and it is to do with fighting these hacks who are kind of taking over the profession, these idle slobs who just think that checking is ringing somebody up and saying, what do you say? It's awful. And I, do, you, do you know this column, the bad science column? It's a Saturday in The Guardian, isn't it, by Ben Goldacre. Do you not like it? 
No, you don't know it. <laughs> but he's very, very aggressive at pulling apart newspaper stories which are based on scientific pronouncements which won't stand up to scrutiny. One of the busiest areas of PR activity is duff surveys. So you'll get, I don't know, the makers of some shaver you know, electric shaver saying, oh, more women have hairy faces than at any time in the last 20 years. It's all some daft sort of hack scientist giving the information to the hack journalist or some little... They, they do these surveys on the internet where they get a couple of thousand people to fill in questions. Oh, what's your name? Are you a female? Have you got a beard? And, and if you fill in this wretched survey, they'll give you a mobile phone or a holiday in Bournemouth. So it's, oh, a survey of 2,000 people says more women have beards. Buy our razor. But, but Ben Goldick is very good because he just attacks all this phony science. And on big stories, too, like all the rubbish we told you about the MMR uh, vaccine and its link to autism, he kick the nuts out of that sort of stuff. So I, don't know, I rather approve of him, as you may have guessed. More? Sorry. Yeah. Do you mean the, you mean the new journalism as in Tom Wolfe? Yes. Do, do you know what we're talking about here? That, that when Tom Wolfe, before he became a novelist, he was a journalist, and he wrote a really interesting thesis about how you could use the techniques of fiction writing to report fact, and how in order to do this you had to do a special kind of research, because so, for example, you might write fiction through the eyes of a character, and since you're a journalist, you can't just invent this. You have to do really deep research with the character so that you're entitled to say how this person felt as they walked down the street. And I, personally, when I was starting out as a hack, I thought this was incredibly exciting as a prospect to be able to do that. Uh, but it is time-consuming, and therefore very few people will be able to do that in the modern world of journalism. I'm slightly worried that I've probably overstated everything while I've been talking to you, because I am tired and it's difficult when you're coming off the top of your head. I, I, so I wanted to sort of say everything I've said to you is true, but knock 5% off and you're probably nearer the truth. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 